Good morning. For yet another week, we have been led to worship the Lord by our musical worship team. And we are so grateful for their service to the Lord and consequently their service to us. Be in prayer for them as they continue to seek the Lord regarding how they can best serve Him by leading us in this venue to worship the Lord. This has been a little odd for me. It's the first time I've ever really had such an experience to an extent to talk to people whom I cannot see. And I love people. Therefore, I want to see the people with whom I talk or speak. So you have borne with me and I have sense that in your prayers for me in this particular setting, and I ask that you'd be praying for me today as I share. Speaking of prayer, we're going to offer what I think is an exciting opportunity for the church this coming Tuesday evening and probably in succeeding Tuesday evenings. We're going to invite you to a virtual prayer meeting. At 6 p.m., you can tune in or, I guess, Dial in or punch in or whatever it'd be called to Zoom. You may say, what in the world is Zoom? Well, don't worry about it. I've got it all together, of course. I'm a real techno guy. Not really. I'm a child of my own generation. But I've been helped by the younger men and women in the church to learn how to take advantage of some of these things. You can go to our website, cbcelp.org. And you will find instructions how to download the free app entitled Zoom. And you will also find on the website on Tuesday when you do dial in that you will be able to find a code that will help you to be an invitee to that process. When you do put the code in and you punch the appropriate button, then you will be hosted by Drew Cook, our worship leader today, and then he will really guide us in our prayer time. Eric Jimenez will be doing a teaching on prayer for approximately 20 minutes, after which time, if you're there, you'll be able to enter into a time of questions and answers. It'll be quite exhilarating for you and me to participate in this. After that time, we'll have close to half an hour for prayer together. You might say, that's a little strange. I mean, how will I know that I'm praying with other people? Well, here's how you'll know. Zoom gives us the capacity to break the group into smaller groups. We can have up to 100 people who can be accommodated in that venue from 6 to 7 p.m. this coming Tuesday evening. But what Drew will do arbitrarily He will place us in groups of four, and we'll be able to share with one another. You'll be able to hear the other three people's voices, as will I, who are in my group or I'm in their group, and we'll have a great time of prayer. I'm pretty excited about it, and I'm grateful for those who are helping this come to pass. Let's just pause a minute and pray for that moment that's upcoming on Tuesday. Father, we know that you are very pleased when we, your children, come before you in prayer. And we know, Father, that you will guide us in our praying. Please be with Drew as he gives overall insight to that prayer meeting. And also we pray for Eric as he prepares to teach the truth from your word on one aspect of prayer. And then, Father, as we break into small groups, we're looking forward to your hearing our prayers on behalf of those for whom we are led to pray. And there are many, Father, in our church who need prayer. And even in our small groups, we'll be able to share personal requests and help us to be open and willing to receive the encouragement of those in our group. Now, Father... As we turn our attention to your word for the remainder of our time of worshiping you together today, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being so kind as to help us in our praying. 
to help us in our learning. Thank you that you are God and you are the one who is in charge of this moment of worship. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Several years ago, my mother received a call notifying her that a close sister in Christ had suffered a tragedy in her home. It really wasn't the first time that Dell Butler had sustained a heavy hit in her heart. You see, her husband, a few years prior to this particular event, had walked out on her for another woman, leaving her, in effect, a widow of sorts with three children to raise. The youngest child still lived in her home. Melody, in her 20s, had a severe heart ailment that had rendered her a practical invalid. Her second oldest child, Jerry, was a drug addict. And the reason mother called was because she had heard that her eldest child, a young man, a contemporary of mine, Ronnie, had committed suicide. Mother wasn't sure what to expect when Dell would pick up the phone when it rang in her home. But there was no harshness. There was no bitterness. Be sure that Dell Butler's heart was broken. But she had hope in that particular situation. Was it because she was a fatalist? Was her philosophy of life, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be? Not quite that way. She did believe in the sovereignty of God. And she also believed what the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, that God is our refuge. She had run to the place she had run on previous occasions when such difficulty entered her life. She'd run for shelter in the shadow of the Almighty's wing. And what she found that the Bible says in Deuteronomy is true and was true for her and is for us too, that underneath are the everlasting arms. Perhaps you are listening this morning and you find yourself in free fall spiritually. It feels like the bottom has dropped out of your life, either from personal things going on or personal things related to the COVID virus and the quarantine and all the issues associated with that. Maybe you just have a sense of dread and despair in your life. Well, let me encourage you. What we're going to look at in God's Word today is going to help you to a great degree. My own heart has been encouraged as I have prepared to share this message, and I've asked the Lord to show me what I'm to share with you. With that having been said, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Second Corinthians. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of this great piece of literature. Paul had no idea that 2,000 years later, people like you and me would be opening a letter that he wrote for his beloved church in Corinth. But God's Spirit knew, and he knew where you and I would be today. He knew we would need the truth about him and about us that is found in this passage of Scripture. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in the version which you have with you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. 
But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. There are two things that are taught to us as to why we have trouble, why we have affliction. The first is that our suffering, did you notice how frequently Paul uses the term suffering or suffer in this section of Scripture? Our suffering is for other people. Lots of people want an answer to the very difficult question, If God is all-loving, why does he let us suffer? Well, there's plenty of answer for us to chew on the rest of our lives when it comes to our trouble in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 4. Speaking of the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, for what purpose? So that we may be able, and actually the idea is, here is to keep on comforting those who are in any affliction. We don't have to have had the same sort of trouble another person has in his or her life at the moment to minister to that person. We are wounded healers, is what God would call us, if we have been comforted by Him in our own trouble. It prepares us to be ready to care for other people. He concludes by saying, with that which we ourselves are comforted by God. A.W. Tozer, the great saint of the last century, says, it is doubtful that God can use any person greatly until first that person has been hurt deeply. None of us wants to sign up to be hurt, but this is part of our lives. We are in a struggle of titanic proportions. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities of this dark world. And Satan is the one who is the regent of all that. It's his kingdom. And he has many minions whom he dispatches to try to discourage us and cause us to quit and to give up in this life. But we are people who are comforted by God. The question would be raised, who wounds us? Now, it could be said that the devil is the one and his helpers are the ones who hurt us. But we need to be sure we understand that the devil is not a free and independent operator. In the book of Luke chapter 22, right on the verge of Jesus going to die, in one of his last conversations with the apostles, he looks at Simon Peter, who in effect was the leader of the apostles. They looked to him for leadership. Jesus recognized the natural leadership ability of Simon Peter. And he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. We know what that resulted in, that sifting. What did Peter do? He denied the Lord. Did he suffer? Well, he suffered by the things which he did, but he suffered much 
in his life. But he never complained after Christ came and mentored him in the post-resurrection experiences and continued to teach him. He never complained about his suffering. Something happened to this man. And Jesus had predicted it. He says, after you have returned from denying me three times, then you will restore the brothers because I have been praying for you. But notice the beginning part of that. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. From whom did the devil gain permission? to the one to whom he ultimately answers, to none other than God himself. So you might say God sipped the devil on the apostles. And not just Peter, on all of them. Because when he said, Satan has gained permission to sift all of you like wheat, is really what he said. Not just you singular, but all of you, is what he was saying. By the way, Why did Paul go to Asia? It would be Turkey today. Why had he found his way to Ephesus, where there was a lot of difficulty there? The hardships were great. Why did he go there? Well, the Holy Spirit of God led him there. It was the will of God for him that he become an apostle. And by virtue of his becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, he faced fear in the form of various kinds of attacks in his life. So it was God's will for that to happen. When we follow Jesus, there are going to be troubles of various kinds. And they're not without God's notice. He's not indifferent to your trouble. In fact, when Paul was arrested on the road to Damascus to wreak havoc on the church at Damascus and The Lord Jesus intercepted him, knocked him off of his horse, blinded him. And what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, the church of Jesus Christ? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus doesn't like it when we're persecuted. He's our big brother. However, God the Father permits this in our lives so that we, in turn, can be used by Him to comfort others in a fallen world. Praise God for the way in which He does this. I'd like to ask you, before we go on to the major part of our consideration of this passage, to turn in 2 Corinthians to the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what Paul writes about Jesus. He says, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. When we come to know Jesus, He comes to indwell our lives. He's done that in order that we may no longer take ourselves as the beginning and ending point of our lives. We will not have ourselves as the reference point any longer. He wants us to focus upon Him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the Bible says. When Jesus calls people to follow Him, He says exactly that. Keep on following Me. He is our new leader. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And He leads us. So, we realize that our suffering is for other people. Quite frankly, when my mother told me the story that I began with today about her reaching out, thinking that she would be a source of comfort to Dale Butler, the tables were turned on my mom. And she became the one who was ministered to by this woman who had been devastated one more time in her life. Numbed, some people would say, But that wasn't what was going on in Mrs. Butler's life. It was freedom. Freedom to be real when hurt, not to act like it didn't hurt. But also freedom to be liberated from the bondage of 
deep, deep agony with no purpose whatsoever, realizing that her Savior learned obedience through what he suffered, and he has set us free as his children to be like him in this regard. Let's now go on to the second main idea in this passage of Scripture, and it will give us a little more perspective. In fact, this has helped me so much since the Lord has taught me this. Not only is our suffering for others, but our suffering is for ourselves. It's important that we see this order of things that is outlined in this passage of Scripture. Look at this passage again, and we're back now in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 8. It says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Let's stop just a moment. We don't know the precise way it came to Paul, but we have some idea. We know that when Paul was in Ephesus, it was a city where Artemis or Diana, depending upon your choice of names for this goddess, it was where she was worshipped. And it was a source of great revenue for silversmiths because they would fashion little shrines, miniature shrines like the one in Ephesus, and then they would sell them. They made a handsome income from that. There was one leader among those craftsmen. His name was Demetrius. And he was agitated because the people who came to know Jesus, they brought their books and burned them. And those books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money, isn't it? And it was upsetting to him. He knew he was losing money hand over fist. So he called a group of his co-craftsmen in silver together and he said, Look, we know that our great goddess Artemis is being undermined by this interloper, Paul, And we need to do something about it. So they began to create a mob. And they began to chant. For two whole hours they chanted. And the crowd would have grown. Great is Artemis in Ephesus. On and on. And a huge mob that grew more and more violent gathered there. Well, that would have been a little scary, wouldn't it? The Apostle Paul was no coward But he was no fool either. He knew what would lie ahead for him, possibly, if not probably. It was not the first time, nor it was the last time, that he would face such situations. But what we need to know is that this distress that comes first as we progress toward understanding how we can transform our trouble, and more importantly, and probably more accurately, how God can transform us in our trouble and give us the power to not simply endure, but to thrive in that situation as servants of the Lord to those around us who may not have experienced the support of the Lord that we've experienced at that point in their pilgrimage. We need to be real when we talk about what goes on in our lives We need to explain that we have difficulty in our lives. There was a spiritual which grew out of the 19th century, and it went like this. Nobody knows the trouble I bear. Well, let me be very clear. They should know the trouble you bear. Not everybody where you're whining and complaining, but you need to share it with people. We've kept a stiff upper lip far too long. It's high time that the church become a place for burden-sharing And burden-bearing, you know what the Bible says, I hope, in Galatians chapter 6, that we're to bear one another's burdens. How will we ever bear others' burdens if we don't know what they are? We are the family of God. And in families, we share these things with each other. And we are healed and supported by sharing them. Here are some statements that could be made by different people in our church. My marriage is in trouble. My child is on drugs and I don't know what to do. I can't take the loneliness created by my spouse's death anymore. 
I'm in a financial bind, and I need help to get out of and stay out of it. My tongue's getting the best of me. I'm depressed. My pride's overwhelming me. Lust is consuming me. I've got a drinking problem. That's just a few of the things that I've heard over the course of the years of being a pastor. There are many more. What is your problem? What is your trouble? You need to share it. You don't need to add anything to your life that's not already there. You have the Lord in you, and you want to share it and get someone to encourage you. We've hidden far too long before masks of perfection. We have violated the Word of God in so doing. The Bible says, confess your faults to one another. How long has it been since you've done that? Not as an act of exhibition, but of an act of, in some ways, desperation. In your distress, you need help. Share, communicating to a hurting world. This is what happens. When we are real in the church, we communicate to a hurting world that there is no hope for them if we don't share. We communicate that there's no hope for them in the church since all of us have lives that are flawless. Authenticity is absent. Credibility, I would think, is at an all-time low. We need to be real. During the early days of World War II on the European front, there was an organization known as Voice of America. It was broadcast over the English Channel to France and to Germany. The house, the, the man's name who did the communication was John Hausman. He later became an Academy Award winning actor in the film The Paper Chase. And he would speak to the people every night. And I'm sure those who were under the heel of the Third Reich in France and Germany, hating it all the while, would listen. And he never told the lie. He would talk about all the defeats every day. If there was a defeat or a setback in the war the, on the Allied side, he would note it. But this is what he would always conclude with, telling them what was going to happen. And he talked about how America in the coming year was going to build 500 airplanes and 750 tanks. And they did. America did do that. We need to be honest. We need to tell the truth. But we also have more than just negative things to report. Do we not? We are those who know Jesus. We know what he's done for us and what he will do for people who don't know Christ. It's a great recommendation for them. Well, distress, the next thing is it gives way to despair. This is the road that must be traveled in order for a person to learn how to overcome and see your trouble actually as a stepping stone to spiritual maturity. It's really an asset. Look again at verse 8. I'll begin at the first and read forward. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. This means to an extraordinary degree they were burdened. This word burdened was used to describe a sailing vessel which was loaded until it was barely above water level. It was also used to describe a beast of burden who had such a heavy burden that it collapsed under the heaviness of that burden. This is a heavy burden. It was used in Mark's gospel to describe after Jesus had gone into the depths of the garden and left his three closer associates. And he said, you stay here and pray. And when he came back out, it said they had fallen asleep because their eyes were heavy. That word for heaviness. Have you ever been that sleepy? As hard as you could try. Some of you are already asleep this morning. You've tried really hard to stay awake, but you have been bored to tears. Sorry about that, but pick up on the action now, okay? Let's, let's start over again. And this idea is exceedingly burdensome. This pressure was great, and it gave way to despair as we see in his own statement, that we despaired even of life. 
I got to wondering about the word life. I knew before I started studying this in depth that there are two words, really three words, in the New Testament which are translated by our term life. One is the word, surprisingly enough, soul, suke. That's one of the words, soul. This word was not used by Paul here. Another word is bios. It's the prefix to biology. It's natural life, physical life. That's not the word which is used here. The word is zoe. Some of you may know a young lady or many young ladies who have the name Zoe. It's a direct transliteration from the New Testament language of Greek into English, Zoe. And this is the word that is used exclusively in the New Testament to describe that which would be described as abundant life or eternal life. It's life that's qualitative and forever. So it's possible. I find it hard to really believe about Paul, but it's conceivable. And this would be true of some of you. I know some of you feel like God's stepchild because you feel like he has abandoned you. He is not interested in you. He'll help others. You have no problem believing he can help others, but he's not helping you. And it may have even caused you to doubt your own salvation. It may have been the case, maybe, with Paul, despaired even of my eternal life, is the idea here, possibly. That's big-time desperation, isn't it? It's utter despair. Were you in that situation today? Let me remind you of what Jesus says in Luke 21:28. Look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. At the darkest point of night. It's just a little while later till the dawn begins to break. If you're in a dark place today, don't give up. William Wordsworth, who under the reign of Queen Victoria was the poet laureate in Great Britain. He achieved that great position because of the skills he had and the way he applied them. And he said that most, if not nearly all, of his inspiration came at night. Now, there was no electricity at the time. You just had a coal oil lamp, and when you got ready to go to bed, you blew it out. And he said, came to me, not at night, that's not the way he described it. Poetically, you would expect this from him. Came at dark. And he said, I had to learn to write in the dark or I would lose that which I received. Now, the good news for us is when it's dark, it's a time when our ears are really attentive to the Lord. You may have awakened in the middle of the night last night. And it was so quiet in your house, so quiet that you could hear the silence. And the Lord may have been wanting to speak to you. Listen to the Lord. Talk to the Lord. Tell Him your despair. He knows anyway. Cry out to the Lord. He will respond to you. Realize that this is a step that must be experienced. What does it begin with? Distress. Great pressure. What does it Continue with despair, despairing even of life. And then despair leads to death to oneself. Let's go ahead and read just a little further here in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Wow, that's strong language, isn't it? Sentence of death within us. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. This language suggests that when Paul questioned himself regarding the outcome of his hardship, the answer he received was death. He thought he was going to die. That's saying a lot for the Apostle Paul. He had faced worse situations before, but he thought the final day on earth is coming for me. I hope you know that God brings you and me into the roughest of situations in order that he can use us to influence other people in the long run and to let us really come to know him as we otherwise would not come to know him. Scott read from 
Psalm 16, and he talked about how his heart, the psalmist does, David, spoke to him in the night. It's interesting, isn't it? And he also went on to say, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. My dear friend, my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, if you're hurting today, what you need to understand is that God is going to speak to you and He's going to make you and mold you into the image He wants you to be, His own image. We must reach the end of our resources before we experience His resurrected life. This is hard. Dying does not come easy, even to people who've come to know Jesus. We have to let go. I mean, not just sort of let go. We have to fully release our lives into His care and let Him guide us and protect us as only He is capable of doing. We are instinctively self-sufficient, aren't we? And Americans especially are. This has been a wake-up call for America. It's been a wake-up call for the church. We have to depend on the Lord. That's the whole point. As I think of self-sufficiency, I think of a group of men who are mentioned by the writer of Psalm 107, a bunch of sailors who went out to sea. They were very exhilarated. They loved the sea. There is an enchantment to the sea, isn't there? It's so magnificent and expansive and so beautiful. We see things there that we cannot see on land. And as this psalmist unfolds the episode in his mind, a great storm arises. And he says that God was the one who brought the storm. The storm arises. And these sailors apply every technique that they have learned about how to sail. And the end result is they come, as the psalmist says in Psalm 107, to their wit's end. That is to say, and literally it means they had expended all the wisdom they had about sailing. They had nothing. And then they cried out to the Lord. Would you say they were in distress? Did their distress lead to despair? And they were facing death. And then all of a sudden, as they cried out to the Lord in total dependence upon Him, what did He do? He calmed the storm and brought him them safely to the desired destination. We are people who must face the reality of the treachery of our own selfishness. Self-sufficiency must die in us. I like what the great writer of A Serious Call to a Devout Life, his name was William Law, from the 17th century, this is what he said, All of pride must die in a man before anything of heaven can live in that man. That's to do with women as well and people. What is the pathway we must follow? Let's rehearse it very quickly. What has to happen first? There must be distress. You got some distress? Praise God. It's important in your progression to being used by God and ministering to other people. Distress leads to what? Despair. Despair leads to what? Death to self. And death to self gives way to dependence on God. Let's go back to the passage of Scripture and read again in verse 9. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. To depend upon the Lord. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, wrote these words, Only where graves are is there resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? There's no way that the power of Christ can be evident in our lives unless there is a death. He had to die in order to be raised from the dead. And we are people who must also follow in the footsteps of Jesus in this way, dying to ourselves, letting go. He is one we can trust totally, isn't He? The good news is, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. Praise God. Let's think about Jesus for a moment as we trust in him. He is our life. He says in Galatians 2.20, Paul does. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Miracle of miracles. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what he says elsewhere. Paul does. Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the body. I live by the faith of... That's the right translation. The King James gets it over all the newer translations. The faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus lives in us. His faith is transferable through us as we learn to trust in him and depend upon him. He's faithful. He's God. Paul and John both in their writings talk about how God is faithful on numerous occasions. He's also understanding. He's sympathetic. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way like we are, tried in every way like we are, yet without sin. Now, draw your attention again to verse 3. Look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Our God is a merciful God. He is a God of compassion. Wonderful to think about. When I mess up, when I sin, He convicts me of my sin. He doesn't go and say, stand in the corner over here, Mike. Go over there. Just stand over there, and when I get ready for it to come out, you come out. And He doesn't take sin with a grain of salt. It's serious to him. Against him and him only have I sinned. But if I sincerely confess and repent of my sin, he says, welcome home, son. Learn from this lesson. I am the God of mercies, all mercies. He's not only a God of compassion, but a God of comfort, isn't he? Why, sure, that's what he says. And do you know, I counted it up. In this passage of Scripture, there are ten references to either the noun or the verb comfort. This is our God. He comforts us. In Psalm 34, 18, David writes these words. He says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted today? Is your spirit crushed? Are you struggling just to keep your head above water? The good news is, Jesus is sympathetic with you. He understands. Did Jesus have distress in his life? Well, sure he did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat what appeared to be drops of blood. Did he despair? Well, yes, he did despair. How do we know? He talked to his apostles, the three that were closer to him particularly, and he said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I would say that's utter despair. Jesus understands your despair. What about death to self? Well, Jesus, as he wrestled with what lay ahead, as he prayed alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays this, Lord, all things are possible for you. But not my will, but your will. If it's possible, though, Lord, would you please rescue me from this situation? But he submitted to the Lord, didn't he? He depended upon him. And the Lord did indeed deliver him. Jesus is not only faithful and sympathetic. He is also powerful. There's nothing impossible for God. This God raises the dead. As we scan the horizon of history, a parade of those whom God has raised passes in dress review. Before us, Jesus is at the head of the procession. And then there is Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain and Dorcas and Eutychus and us who know Jesus. We have been raised from the dead is what the scriptures say. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We've been raised to new life and to live the life that Christ designed for us. And as we live this sort of life, the same things that came out of Jesus' life will come out of ours. 
you may remember the name Jairus. He was a synagogue ruler. His precious child, his only child, Talitha Kum, a little dear child, had died maybe 12 years of age. He came to Christ and he begged Christ to raise her. And Jesus said this as he followed the man to the place where that little girl lay. And by the time they got there, she had expired. And he said, as the mourners were mourning, and he said to the man, your daughter's not dead. The people say that she's dead. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Well, people ridicule you when you walk this kind of life. When you don't really deal with things the way they see you should deal with things. But you're depending on the Lord, not on your senses. You're relying on your own spiritual sense based on the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. What is your problem today? Do you think it's too big for God? Maybe you're barren. You've wanted to have a child. You beg God for a child, but there is no child that has come to dwell in your womb. Maybe you're single. You don't think you'll ever get married, and you really want to get married. Well, don't give up until the Lord says, I want you to be single. Maybe you're broke. A lot of us may be before this COVID deal's over, right? God can open your womb. He can give you a mate or satisfy you in your singleness. And we've seen in recent weeks how if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all the necessities of life will be added to us. So here are the steps. What's the first step? Distress. What's the second step? Despair. Death to self. Then dependence on the Lord. And praise the Lord. What follows that? Deliverance. That's what the Scripture says here. Let's look at verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. What do we have to do? We set our hope on the Lord, not on the circumstances around us, not on our pocketbooks or our portfolios, not on anything except the Lord. Set our hope on the Lord. And He will yet deliver us. I love the confidence of Paul. He didn't sound very confident to begin with, did he? And he wasn't. He's being real. Just like, remember when Jethro came to meet his son-in-law, Moses, and they sat down and he wanted to know what had happened. He'd heard rumors, but he wanted to hear it right from the mouth of the leader, Moses. And Moses told him about all the things that God had done to deliver them from Pharaoh and the Egyptians And then it says, and all the hardships they had faced on the way. And how the Lord delivered them from all the hardships. We, I repeat, will authenticate the gospel by sharing how the Lord has delivered us, including, especially including the hardships. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. That's a promise. Both sides of it, many are the afflictions. Well, out of, the idea of being delivered out of in this passage of Scripture is that of having been in something and having been taken out of it. Going through it and coming out refined like one as if by fire. Becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Lord wants us to be victorious. In John 16, 33, He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my peace may be in you. In this world you have trouble, He said. But don't stop there. Because I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. I love what The great commentator Matthew Henry says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, our extremity is God's opportunity. In other words, the worst place you might find yourself in relationships, in health, in financial situations, 
the worst place you find yourself is God's prime opportunity to work in you and to work through you. Psalm 55:22 will be the last thing I'll refer to today. Psalm 55:22, the psalmist David writes these words, "Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not let the righteous be forsaken." The word burden translates this Hebrew phrase. I'm going to insert it instead of the word burden. Listen carefully. Cast what He has given you upon Him. Your burden has been given to you by permission of your God, who is a loving God, a faithful God, a sympathetic, understanding God, an all-powerful God, so that you can cast it back on Him. Whatever it is that's weighing you down today, it could be a lack of assurance about your salvation. You know, know for sure if you were to die today, you'd go to be with God in heaven. You've been bothered by this during this time of difficulty in our nation with this illness. Well, that can be settled in an instant as you trust the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I want to humbly receive eternal life today as a gift from you to me. I want to know you. I need to know you. And if for those of you who are listening, just need to renew your commitment to the Lord and follow this clear map that God gives us to go to the place of dependence once and for all upon the Lord. Do that. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask today that your Holy Spirit will continue to guide us and walk with us through this time of trouble. And we're going to ask you now, Holy Spirit, to fill our lives. Just take control. Take control of every aspect of our being. And for those who are here today who don't know you, Jesus, we pray you'll open their heart and they'll receive you into their lives and give them eternal life, Lord. Give them assurance of their salvation. And we ask this in your name. Amen.